and welcome to Ian's Research Club. I'm your host, Ian T. Today I'm thrilled to be speaking to curators Tina Boom and Phoebe Scott about the exhibition Ever Present, First Peoples Art of Australia. Tina Boom has been curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art at National Gallery of Australia since 2005. She's the lead curator of Ever Present and has over 30 years of experience working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and communities within museums and art galleries across Australia. Phoebe Scott is curator at National Gallery of Singapore and is also an adjunct lecturer in art history at the National University of Singapore. Before we continue, I would like to invite Phoebe to give an acknowledgement of country. Hi Ian, thanks for having us and thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so to begin, as, as part of Aboriginal and nowadays Torres Strait Islander customary practice, when visiting the homelands or country of another community, it's important to be welcomed by the traditional custodians of that place, if possible. And where this is not possible, then the visitor still needs to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country that they are visiting. So these acknowledgements of country allow the visitors to recognize and pay their respects to the traditional custodians and to also be protected by the ancestors while visiting. So because we have the exhibition ever present here, which is traveled in Singapore, we're gonna be acknowledging the traditional custodians of the country from which the artists came. So, so this is it. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country where each First Nations artist resides or where the art in ever present was created. We recognize their continuing connections to country, community and culture and pay our respects to their elders, leaders and artists past and present. We respectfully acknowledge all First Nations traditional custodians whose art we are currently exhibiting in Singapore. So this is quite a lovely form of words that Tina and National Gallery of Australia gave us to be able to make this gesture from the Singapore site as well. Thank you so much, Phoebe. To give a brief primer about the show we'll be talking about, Ever-Present surveys historical and contemporary works by more than 150 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists from across Australia. The exhibition first opened at the National Gallery of Australia December 2021 and is now on view at National Gallery of Singapore till September 2022. Notably, it is the largest exhibition of its kind to travel to Asia. Ever-Present celebrates First Peoples art while grappling with Australia's complex histories. Art emerges as a tool for resistance, asserting deep connections to country, as well as using wit and satire to encourage conversations about key issues. Taken together, these works challenge stereotypes about First Nations people and what defines their art. The exhibition also sheds light on historical links with Southeast Asia, through works that highlight the region's trading encounters by sea and recent artistic exchanges in Baltic. Without further ado, let's dive right in to discuss the exhibition. Tina, Phoebe, welcome to the club. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Um, by way of introduction, I'm curious, what are some of the questions you hope to address and ask through the exhibition? Tina, maybe you, you could begin from your perspective in developing the exhibition. Wonderful, right, not a problem. Um, just a little background. Um, I was brought on in early 2021 um, to help, uh, you know, finalise the exhibition development of Ever Present after the initial curator for the show left the National Gallery of Australia. And during that time, I proposed a new concept for the exhibition featuring the, the current six themes uh, in the show, Ancestors and Creators, Country and Constellations, community and family, trade and influence, and resistance and colonisation. Um, and, you know, it was really important to include a more diversity of works and artists from the more urban-based um, regions or for those artists who, for whatever reason, now live off country. And, the, and to also include the other recognised First Peoples of Australia, um, those from the Torres Strait Islands in far North Queensland. And as a proud, you know, saltwater woman from the Gulamerijan, Larrakia and Wadaman people of the Northern Territory and the Garajari people from Western Australia, it was really important for me to get across to the audiences who had potentially never encountered or knew of the First Peoples of Australia and their art and culture, some really key grounding concepts and ideas that are still either culturally practised today, but also to show that for many who through colonisation and displacement have um, had their ongoing connections to family, country, 
culture and identity forcibly taken from them. So these stories and more, um, like the centuries, centuries long connections with the Southeast Asian Makassan people are still revealed in the art um, by artists today, and of course in ever present. So as the title um, hints to, you know, uh, ever present uh, talks about the ongoing connectedness, the longevity, and that despite all that was experienced since first contact, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are still proud, strong, resilient, and most importantly, still here and remain and will remain an enduring presence in Australia. Um, and what better way than through their art? Yeah, well, so for me, I guess I'm coming from a different perspective. You know, I'm a curator at National Gallery Singapore. I've, I've been here for, for 10 years. Um, and I was one of the uh, curators of the inaugural Southeast Asia exhibition here. So in some of, um, in that way, you know, some of the ways that I was kind of thinking about um, the ever-present exhibition and how it developed was also really informed by the, the curatorial work of National Gallery Singapore and the, and the Southeast Asia Gallery in particular. But as you can probably tell from my voice, I, I'm also originally Australian. Um, so it was very interesting to return to the history of, of the art of uh, the first peoples of Australia and to look at it kind of again from the vantage point um, of Singapore and Southeast Asia. And, and as this show developed, I really came to feel that it spoke very powerfully to certain values that National Gallery Singapore tries to uphold. Um, and in many ways, the content also challenges us to rethink certain of our assumptions as well. And I want to refer here to the gallery's vision and mission statement to, to show what I mean, because I think it, it makes it really kind of tangibly real. But part of our vision is to be a progressive art museum that fosters and inspires a thoughtful, creative and inclusive society. So I'm quoting there. But I think in this exhibition, you can see quite powerfully the way that art has been used as a tool for social justice, as a means of raising the visibility of the first peoples of Australia, but also for advocating for really tangible social and political change. So this aspect of inclusivity is kind of progressive quality is very strong in the exhibition. And then part of National Gallery's mission is to create dialogues between the art of Singapore, Southeast Asia and the world through collaborative research and exhibitions. And that's something that we've always aimed at and done throughout our exhibition programming. So we did it previously for modern art in Europe and America through exhibitions like Reframing Modernism in 2016 or Minimalism in 2018. But I also feel, you know, if we're gonna tackle this from a fundamentally kind of decolonizing perspective, it really means going beyond using the history of Western art as our reference point and also exploring trajectories of modern and contemporary art that challenge us to rethink what these concepts might even mean. And I believe that the art of the First Peoples of Australia kind of really is the opportunity to do this and to consider some of those questions. So that's perhaps more of an art historical angle, but of course there's, there's broader resonances that the exhibition brings up as well. You know, things like the shared legacy of British colonialism, or our understanding of Southeast Asia as a, as a region, which Tina touched on just now, you know, it's kind of an important opportunity for us to consider, you know, some of our thinking about regionality. And the exhibition also includes these materials relating to the historical linkages um, between the First Nations of Australia and Southeast Asia, which are, we're in very close geographical proximity, but also in direct contact. So as we worked on the show together, you know, there were really all these ways that we felt the artworks could trigger some very pertinent and interesting reflections for us. Yeah, and indeed it was such a rich exhibition when uh, I attended the media preview. For me, it was my first encounter with art um, by First Nations people and it was really quite a revelation, I think, which is also partly why I felt it would be nice to do this podcast episode and take some time to unpack some of the terminology, but also perhaps to give first-time visitors some of the tools to engage with the art that they're mm. going to see when they visit the gallery. Um, on that note, I thought it would be nice for us to perhaps take a quick walk through the exhibition along its three main galleries, as well as fill up the activation spots where works engage with the museum's history as well as permanent collection. When visitors enter Gallery 1, they would encounter paintings associated with the desert art movement. There are examples which depict animal or human forms, but there are also others which seem to be purely abstract, composed of dots, lines, and patterns. Yet these works are also modes of storytelling. Could you 
talk more about the visual language employed by these artists, as well as what are the elements a viewer should perhaps look out for to glean these narrative threads? Gosh, that's such a, a big question. Um, I know for me, looking at the visual language in the exhibition, um, there are, I suppose, two, two key uh, frameworks, I suppose, audiences can look at the works through. So culturally um, or personally um, uh, via the artist, that is. So for certain artists that still have that um, ongoing connections with their cultural practice, they have uh, cultural designs that are either, you know, inherited or passed down through the generations um, or uh, individual artists are starting to, particularly now as, as they are experimenting with their arts practice, you know, developing those individual um, visual language that they have, um, that once you, you, you know how to read or um, understand how each artist, um, you know, what sort of visual language they use, then you can really read and see which works are theirs. Um, but also those that are, you know, I know we're looking at the beginning of the exhibition where we're looking at, um, you know, particular, uh, those particular designs that, you know, could also be individual representations of country. So you talk about, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the works that are in the desert area or the, you know, Arnhem Land area, you know, there's an artist there in the exhibition, which they, that audiences may see across uh, the different gallery spaces, um, an artist called John Moundel, who, who has a work in the beginning of the exhibition, um, you know, that looks at, um, say, for example, an early work from the 1990s, a rainbow serpent with, with buffalo horns. So, you know, it's a very figurative, um, a very distinctive style that he has there. And of course, later on, as they go through the exhibition, they'll see that there's a more abstract work of, of his in um, the show where, you know, when you look at um, in detail inside the body, the individual designs inside of the, uh, uh, the, the rainbow serpent, you'll see a particular sort of design of cross-hatching or racking, uh, which it is known as, um, that is, you know, really fine intricate lines and, and details. And so in his later work, he's actually just drawn upon just that element of his work and has removed the figurative and has really focused in on this particular design. So, you know, as he's developed as an artist, he is certainly, you know, concentrated on, on elements of his cultural practice that are really important to him. So when, when audiences are reading, um, there's no real easy way of being able to read um, uh, the, the, the art in the exhibition other than, you know, the works that actually, um, you know, resonate with, with audiences. Um, visually, you know, we're hoping that audiences will be able to get a sense of the diversity, at least across the different um, regions that the artists come from, but also through the different themes within the exhibition. But the visual language is, is really quite an individual one for each of the artists, whether they represent their, um, their cultural knowledge, their practice, whether it's their individual personal designs or, you know, as people will see that there's quite a lot of representations of country, whether it's the physical, you know, sort of, um, not the physical, but the, the visual representation of, of their country there. So, um, yeah, that was a tough question. <laughs> and I'm curious, because in the main area, there are two really large paintings which are presented on the floor. What is the reason for this? The two, the two works um, are by Doreen Reed Nakamura and Dorothy Napangadi. And as you mentioned, they're both displayed on the floor. And we started doing that at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra in 20, uh, 2009. Um, we, we found it interesting, particularly with the Doreen Reed Nakamura work, which many will see is called Untitled. When they see the work, um, it is a representation, a, uh, a literal representation of her country. So the Sandhills, so she's from a very desert region full of sandhills um, or tallies as she calls them. 
um, and the rippling effect that she has created through um, the particular design that she is, has used um, is one that was used certainly by other more senior artists prior to her, um, but she's really sort of per perfected it. And when we, the differences of showing the artwork on the ground to the wall, as they'll see. So on the wall behind uh, Doreen's work is a work by um, uh, George Jungarai, who um, a very similar sort of design, but it's shown on the wall. Um, it's it's looking at at um, other sort of subject matters, but very, again, very similar sort of um, uh, application of of the dots to create these lines in his works. But with Doreen's work being shown on the floor, um, it, it visually it's it's got this this incredible um, you know effect that. Um, really gives a 3D, um, you know, movement in the work, which audiences or visitors will see. And so we really wanted to show, A, that um, the artists created these works on the ground. So mm -hmm. they sit down and they create and they paint the works on the ground. Um, that's a more sort of practical reason, but also, you know, a, a a personal choice of being able to to sit down and to really paint the, the way that they want to paint um, but it also then gives a um, a, a really um, you know important perspective of that individual artist country and so yeah when visitors see it hopefully they'll be able to see that you know when you're out in the desert that this is how the the sand hills look and uh, you know um, you've got an aerial view and you're kind of flying across cross country so you know, it was really important to to show art in not only the way that the artist may have intended it to have been seen, but um, but also to show it um, in different ways to give a more um, just a different uh, perspective uh, of the works that were created. PB, was there something you wanted to add just now? Oh no, I was just agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think the next thing that I'd like to discuss actually are the materials and the substrates of some of these paintings. Um, could you talk about how synthetic polymer paint came to be used in these works? Of course, um, acrylic paint or synthetic polymer paint is a fairly recent invention that only became popularly adopted in the 70s. Um, how is it connected to the desert art movement? Well, particularly with the desert uh, uh, regions or with any of the, the regions within Australia, really, um, you know, um, culturally um, natural materials were used, of course, to um, in, in the art. So whether it's naturalized pigments of ochres, charcoals, clays, um, you know, the various natural materials were used um, for since time immemorial. Um, of course, with any... Um, development, arts development in the country when art um, centre coordinators or art teachers um, have placements or, or um, you know, are involved with communities in particularly the regional um, and remote areas um, like the desert region, the, the introduction of, of synthetics really um, had a big impact in, in so many different ways. So, you know, not only um, particularly, say, for example, the Papanya community that you, you referenced, um, where in the 1970s, the men in the community, you know, started, um, you know, through, um, uh, again, uh, an, uh, an art centre coordinator um, there, you know, started depicting their, their stories. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the evolution of understanding, um, you know, how and why, um, the arts operates within Australia. The men in those days, of course, were, were depicting um, stories that were um, sometimes sensitive in nature, culturally restricted um, stories, which then changed. And so, you know, once, um, you know, the artist um, moved from, you know, traditionally where these might have been part of a, a ceremony that a ground design was done with, with you know, um, the natural materials as mentioned to, to using these acrylics, which of course has had shifted not only physically the, um, the depiction of these or reinforcement of these stories for these artists um, that, um, 
you know, it really enabled them to, you know, expand their colour palette as well because, you know, their natural earth pigments are, you know, blacks, browns, yellows, whites, etc. Um, and so for the men, of course, to be able to use blues and reds and other colours has, has, you know, you know, really gave them both, you know, artistically as well as culturally an opportunity to expand on their different stories that they were painting. Um, but also with the introduction of canvas, um, you know, initially in the 70s, they were painting on these composite boards or boards that any sort of, you know, sort of small um, sort of boards about the size of A4 size paper, you know, boards that they could paint these really quite important and epic stories on. Um, it really kind of condensed them into these little, little boards. But, you know, with the introduction of synthetic, synthetic paints, um, with canvas and of course canvas can be you know um, um you know stretched to to huge sizes now um the artists in this particular region of course um you know really um developed professionally and culturally so you know there's works in there there's two works again there's uh, Clifford Possum Dabaldari is one of those artists who um you know he has a smaller work on this on board um that are Still, even though they are, um, you know, sometimes acrylic paints, they're, you know, still using those sort of um, similar palette of the browns, whites and, you know, uh, blacks, etc. Um, he has a very large canvas nearby that, of course, incorporates a whole range of other colours um, and is, is absolutely huge in comparison. So, you know, the, the introduction of new materials to any... Um, you know, introducing different materials to any artist, you know, enables them to just expand in so many different ways. But, you know, for the women as well in these communities, being able to represent um, the country and the, and the elements of country that they are particularly either interested in or focus on, say, for example, the women who might, uh, you know, uh, focus on um, the plant life there. So Emily Kamanware is another you know, major, um, she is really the key um, female Aboriginal artist in the exhibition and within Australia as well. Um, you know, being able to use these synthetic polymer paints, these acrylic paints, enabled them to really show what their country is like. So using, you know, after the rains go through the desert, of course, people think the desert is just this boring sort of brown desert dry area. But once, of course, the rains go through, the flowers blossom. So, again, you know, the the palette is is opened up when using acrylics to to depict the colours of these flowers out in country. And so, you know, looking at um, you know the the, the development really um, of the art the artists in these regions is really quite exciting. And and you know, hopefully, people um, and visitors see that as they go through. You know, the sort of the initial sort of muted you know, or, or set palette of those, you know, browns, whites, blacks, etc., to these these bright and vibrant colours. Um, there were some stages at one point during the um, development of arts, of the Aboriginal arts from the desert region at one point where the ladies particularly were using fluorescent colours. So, you know, to really, really branch uh, out from those, those, um, you know, traditional colours that they would have used previously. So, you know, I think um, acrylics, um, canvas, um, new materials has really given that opportunity for artists to, to, to grow in so many ways and to tell so much more um, with their practice. And um, even though there's some formal affinities between desert paintings and what would we would kind of consider modern abstract works? They emerge out of completely different traditions. And my next question is for Phoebe. I'm wondering if you see any parallels between um, how desert paintings emerge out of its own unique conditions with the kind of artistic traditions that emerged out of Southeast Asian art. Mm, I think it's a really interesting question. But in some ways, the idea of sort of distinct traditions is is quite challenging in a modern setting and, and really difficult to untangle. So for me, it's kind of interesting to consider even an artist like Emily Kamingware, who Tina just mentioned, we have a really majestic work by her in the exhibition. Her work emerges from her intimate knowledge of country and her background in ceremonial body painting, 
But in Australia, she has this nickname of being, you know, the Jackson Pollock of the desert painting movement, even though, of course, you know, she had no connection to it and presumably not much interest in, you know, abstract expressionism per se. But what I think this shows is that the, the broader reception of her painting was perhaps conditioned by the, the appetite for a type of painting that abstract expressionism had already produced. So even here, we see a kind of entanglement between the conditions, uh, sorry, between the traditions. And I think that that kind of situation happens in Southeast Asia too. And if, if we look across the history of Southeast Asian modern art, I would say that maybe what is more common is that artists are cognizant both of aspects of European or American modernism, as well as indigenous visual traditions, and they mediate between them in a kind of creative and, and sometimes perhaps even a strategic way. So an example might be someone like I don't know, Indonesian artist A.D. Pirus, who drew on the tradition of Islamic calligraphy, or Latif Mohadin, who created a, a very expressive kind of language of lyrical abstraction, but using Southeast Asian iconic forms as sort of the building blocks or the base. But this is, I mean, this is really a process of research and, and interpretation. And in some ways it's kind of speaking to uh, both, both discourses in a way, or both kind of aspects um, of the traditions or of the artistic practice. What adds another very interesting layer, I think, is that so many styles within European and American modernism actually drew from the art of other cultures in the first place, including First Nations and Asian cultures. I mean, that was kind of an aspect of modernism was this kind of appropriation of, of the world and, and reformulation of the style. So in some ways, there's, there's an aspect of resemblance that's already layered into those styles, you know, because of that history. So that's kind of a, another interesting aspect of it too. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point that you brought up because as if audiences are not conditioned or familiar with the material, then often they would perceive or interpret the works based on the, the set of knowledge or, or right. kind of points of reference which are most familiar to them. Right. Um, something that left a really deep impression on me is the personal tone of the exhibition while text. And while museum texts tend to be more impersonal and at times even quite cold, I felt that the wall text in Everpresence stands out in terms of its use of effective language as well as the first person perspective. And Tina, I'd like to ask, how did you approach the writing of the wall text? The, the development of the text in Everpresent was a really interesting exercise for me. So whenever I create, um, you know, wall text or any text for any exhibition I work on, I try to um, always, it's really important to always incorporate the artist's voice. You know, it's important to elevate their voice and provide a platform for them to tell their stories their way. So for this exhibition, this was also used in the extended text and in, you know, in, in you know, many, many ways or as many ways as I possibly could. Um, but it was also working, you know, closely with Phoebe and Z at the National Gallery of Singapore on the wall text um, that it really shifted the way that I would normally think about, um, you know, uh, explaining or talking about these kind of key concepts, which for, you know, for many, but maybe not all, but for many Australians, they may have a basic understanding of Whereas in Southeast Asia, of course, in Singaporean audiences, it, it was, you know, pretty evident. And it was wonderful that Phoebe and Z could, you know, explain to me that that audiences might not understand certain ideas, concepts and, and, and words as, as, as such. So, you know, working closely with them on, on how to make it um, um, more understandable and to ensure, you know, concepts and ideas were understandable was, was really, really important because... We, we really want to um, provide opportunities for audiences to engage at a, at a more personal and, you know, uh, a more culturally deeper uh, way with the works. Because, yes, of course, for, for um, they're visually, visually quite or aesthetically quite beautiful and stunning. And so you want to, you know, draw them in beyond that and explain why particular works might be placed near each other. Um, why um, particular works are actually in the exhibition or in this particular theme when, you know, looking at it, you might think or the audiences might think, oh, well, this is, you know, has a more traditional sort of, um, you know, uh, look to it than, say, uh, uh, an urban-based or off-country um, artist, as I say. 
um, might depict a story that they're talking about. So try to sort of weave a, a, an understanding or, or an, a really clear narrative throughout the exhibition as, as visitors come through and, you know, um, you know, work, I've worked in museums and galleries for a very long time and there's nothing more off-putting than, than text that is dry and, you know, turns you away from, you know, wanting to engage with it at a deeper level. So, you know, I think it was really important for Phoebe, Z and myself to, to really engage with audiences at, at different points um, throughout the exhibition and, um, you know, in a more meaningful way for not only the artists but for the visitors as well. And we, we did something we've never done before um, for the sectional texts in the exhibition, which is these, these sectional texts, you know, for the large kind of clusters in the show, like um, the themes, ancestors and creators, resistance and colonization, they have a framing text that's, that's written, in Tina, um, written by Tina and it's, we presented it as attributed to her, you know, it has her, her name underneath it, which, you know, normally in kind of museum practice, you don't tend to attribute the text to an author, you know, the sectional texts are written in a sort of very objective third person tone. But Tina's texts um, were so passionate and so personal and, you know, written in this wonderful kind of first person way, you know, using the word our about, you know, culture or community, things like that. And we, we felt like it was just really important that, that that voice should be heard and kind of not be neutralised out of the show. So as well as Tina consistently including the kind of artist voice in the individual extended labels, there's also her voice. And, and she was very modest about it. You know, she, she didn't want to make it all about her, but in a way it was <laughs> a, a kind of, I think, a really special way of sort of maintaining the, the presence of um, a very kind of passionate first-person engagement throughout the show. Yeah, I thought that the sense of passion was something that I really felt because it was something that is so different from the past exhibitions, even the special exhibitions at the National Gallery Singapore. Well, maybe we can maintain this direction in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should. I think it's it it was I mean I mean it was not only very warm, but it also felt like you are given a personal tour, even in the absence of a, a docent or a guide. Well, actually, if I if you don't mind me sharing, you know, I have mm -hmm. another upcoming exhibition project that's opening in August this year. It's called Familiar Others, and it's about the gaze on the other in the modern art of Southeast Asia. So it's kind of an interesting subject, and it features the work of three artists for whom the image of the other was especially significant in, in their practice. And so for that exhibition, I'm also trying an experiment with the, the wall text. Um, I commissioned text responses from eight writers, artists, musicians, academics who have community ties to the people represented in the artworks. And they were invited to kind of engage with the works using their own bodies of knowledge, their own perspective, their own experience. And I, I commissioned short text. So in fact, in that show, their text will be presented in the exhibition in place of our usual extended artwork labels. So this is another experiment in the direction of a kind of, you know, opening up the work to different kinds of texts or a different way of writing a museum label. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we would all look forward to the show in August. Yeah, thank you for letting me plug that other show. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, That's great. One of the works in the exhibition that really makes a strong point about challenging stereotypes about First Nations people is Jonathan Jones's um, installation at the end of Gallery 2. Um, perhaps could one of you describe what viewers would see and hear as well as share a little bit more about Jones's research? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in here for a little bit. Maybe you can... Um follow up if, if you uh, want to as well. So Wiradjuri and Camilla Roy artist Jonathan Jones um, created this incredible um, installation, uh, which was a commission supported by West Farmers Arts. Um, and, you know, it was a really important opportunity to, um, you know, provide an opportunity for an artist to, to be able to create a work specifically for Ever Present. Um, but also, you know, um, to, to, to reveal another element of, I suppose, um, Aboriginal cultural or, um, you know, contemporary, um, you know, uh, showcase contemporary um, issues of, of um, focus or concern. And so this particular work, um, you know, Jonathan, he um, is passionate about working with communities. So he, is 
absolutely passionate about providing a platform for elders and, and artists and, you know, just the everyday community members to work on projects with him to talk about stories of importance. And so this particular work is one that really focuses on the Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, Southeast Australian cultural practice of agriculture, I suppose you could say, in looking at an area also that's relatively untouched, um, certainly by male artists, and it's the female practice of, of collecting seeds, create breads out of, you know, these these native seeds that, that are collected. And so Jonathan uh, really wanted to, to give a, a platform to that female practice and the key thing of course that that comes out of the collecting of the seeds and in the exhibition when when visitors come through they'll see these nine large grindstones so they're these large nine stones with with little top stones that sit on top um, that traditionally would have been out in uh, different communities country where it's either part of the landscape where there's areas that they would go and can find grinding grooves throughout country still within Australia whether it's for axes, whether it's for grinding seeds, but also for some communities where particular um, sandstone is not available, they would then, you know, have smaller sort of more portable um, grinding stones that they would take with them. And so the women would, you know, gather these seeds, grind them, you know, make um, a bread out of them. And so, you know, there is evidence of, um, you know, over 30,000 years ago, um, grindstones being used within Australia so essentially you know with um, Uncle Bruce Pascoe and and, uh, other um, academics that he's working with um, Jonathan is looking at you know proposing proposing the idea that um, Aboriginal people were the first bread makers potentially the first bread makers um, bakers in the world Um, you know when there's there's archaeological evidence um, of this type that's out there. So these large grindstones, you know, and he, of course, being Wiradjuri and Camilleroy, which is from the southeast, um, so New South Wales, Victoria, sort of area, New South Wales area, where, you know, that's his key focus um, for him. Although the use of grinding stones occurred across the country and still do, uh, are still out there in in, in country uh, to be seen, but, um, you know, to really acknowledge that, 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 female practice, the history and story, the depth and breadth of the agricultural practices within Australia where, you know, essentially it was the selection of these particular grasses um, and seeds that, you know, through this sort of active um, collecting um, and usage that really changed the landscape. So, you know, that kind of organic farming practices, you know, changed the landscape. So it's not just these, these large grindstones and it's not just about making bread and, and that sort of, you know, really simple sort of um, idea you know it, it extends the, the the story extends much wider to the changing of the landscape and also how through colonization with the clearing of landscapes with the use of um, with the introduction of cattle and sheep that destroyed these native grasses and the planting of these introduced sort of wheat and other grains and such that um, in some cases decimated the native grasses in particular areas that, you know, Jonathan in in another work that he'd done earlier at the Art Gallery of South Australia had used the colonial evidence of colonial paintings and showed how unintentionally they had depicted these native grasses and, you know, around first contact in the beginning and how over time through these, their European um, farming practices and that had changed the landscape and, and, you know, shown the the loss of these native species. But Jonathan and community and others are actively working to reverse that or to at least highlight that, you know, we had these native grains to make flour, to make breads and such, that that was already here. So this idea that Aboriginal people were, you know, not sophisticated enough for these sorts of um, technologies and, and understandings, that that was very much there with before first contact. And so with these grindstones, he's overlaid not only this this sort of singing of Wiradjuri language, which again was at near extinction point 
and is now being revived and, and shared. Um, you know, Uncle Stan Grant Sr. was one of the, the few sort of fluent speakers and now the community reviving and, and spreading the, the knowledge of this language throughout those who want to, anyone who wants to learn it really. And to understand that, you know, like it's not just, it's not a solitary, not necessarily a solitary activity you know, that the women would, would be together grinding these stones, making these breads and singing um, songs as well. So, so you know, it's these sort of whole elements and with the soundscape that he has of grinding and other elements that you'll hear with the work that, um, you know, hopefully visitors will get a sense of, yes, this might be a practice that is not necessarily done prolifically like it was previously, you know, in the beginning, that it's not done as much today. But that knowledge is there, that that practice is still there. And it can, in some areas, they are still doing it. But it is a connection that people still have with their country, with their identity. When you see it, it might be a really simple installation. But when you really, you know, delve into it and you think about it and hear it and you immerse yourself in it, um, hopefully audience will get um, a a deeper sense of of that uh, ongoing connections that uh, community have with this sort of cultural knowledge and, and their country. And it does have a, you know, a very beautiful immersive quality in the space. You know, you can really get kind of wrapped up in the sound as you, you move yeah. past the mm. Yeah, and I think for me, I thought that the, the implications of these grindstones being discovered first as um, archaeological evidence and then being enlarged, quite literally enlarged in um, Jonathan's installation, that was such a simple but loaded um, gesture on his part mm. to... To highlight the, the existence of these literal evidence and also what its implications are for these um, popular myths about First Nations people. I also love to, um, you know, the, not only the power of this work, but, you know, we often talk about, you know, the scientific evidence that proves that uh, certain things happened in Australia with Aboriginal people that, that, oh, yes, you know, here's the actual evidence that you know, Aboriginal people have been in Australia for, the date keeps changing, but 60,000, you know, 80,000 years. It's like, well, the scientific evidence supports our oral histories, our cultural knowledge and our um, ongoing connections. So it's interesting when science is used as the, you know, archaeological evidence, the academic that use their studies and, and uh, knowledge as the evidence or proof that, oh, yes, Aboriginal people have been here or have done these things forever. It's like, well, our oral histories and our presence and our knowledge proves have or had already proven that. So hopefully people, you know, I'd love to be able to prove or to show to people that we didn't need the scientific evidence to to, to, to back this up. It backs up what we have been saying for a very, very long time. So that's what's wonderful about this work, whereas he's using that cultural knowledge and presence to say, yeah, we, we already knew this and we've already got this, this evidence. So, yeah, thanks, science, the science community and academia for, for backing us up. And I think another powerful contemporary work in the exhibition that highlights the the element of the voice is um, Embassy by Richard mm. Bell. And it's a work that's installed in the City Hall chamber. And this choice of venue holds quite a strong symbolic um, gesture. So my next question is for Phoebe. Could you explain mm. perhaps what's the significance of the City Hall chamber and how does it, what is perhaps your reason for including this work at such a venue? Mm. Well, look, in case your, your audience is not familiar with the work, maybe I can give some background about Embassy. So mm. it's, a, it's a work by the artist Richard Bell. And yes, we're currently presenting it in the City Hall Chamber um, to coincide with the exhibition Ever Present. And the artwork itself quotes from the Tent Embassy. So the Tent Embassy was established in 1972 in the lawns in front of the former Parliament House of Australia and was set up by First Nations activists who wanted to claim a site from which they could speak and especially to raise awareness of the government's refusal to grant land rights to Aboriginal people at that time. And, you know, it still, it still exists today. So it's a symbol of a very important time in Australian history when meaningful political change finally began to take place for the First Peoples of Australia. So in kind of making the work, what Richard Bell's work does is it, it, you know, it quotes this original tent embassy by restaging the tent and you can see some of the signage from the original movement, the original event. And then the artist kind of offers it to us as a, a programming space in which, you know, current issues of significance can be discussed. So it's become kind of now a site for like engagement with ideas of decolonization, a site for advocacy and discussion, and especially issues related to First Nations or perhaps 
more broadly speaking, kind of social justice issues. So for the iteration at National Gallery Singapore, we decided to stage the work in the former City Hall Chamber. Um, partly it's because it is right next to the exhibition space for Ever Present, and we, we do quite often stage works from the special exhibitions there. But also, of course, because it's such an historically resonant space for Singapore. So the original City Hall building was from 1929, and it was part of the, the infrastructure of colonial governance in Singapore. But then it also became a very important historical site in the story of Singapore's independence. You know, it's the site where the Japanese formally surrendered to the Allies at the end of World War II, where Singapore was handed back to the British. And then later in 1959, it's the site where Singapore's uh, first self-governing cabinet took their oath of office. So it has all these kind of milestones related to Singapore's colonial and post-colonial history. And it was like it was a witness to these really key moments. So it seemed a very resonant site to stage a work that is also intended to kind of grapple with those, those histories um, and to encourage the sort of continued thinking through of decolonization um, through dialogue. So, so that's why we chose to uh, stage it there. So in terms of how it works, I mean, it's a, it's a programmable space, but visitors can come to embassy and, and sit in the tent at any time. And there's some film screening uh, in the space which come from the artist, including you know, a really interesting documentary from the 70s about the original tent embassy movement. Um, but we'll also be running a series of talks and activities there. So actually on the opening weekend, we had a joint artist talk um, by the First Nations artists, Tony Albert and Julie Goff. And we'll be following up uh, with some other talks, including later a talk with the artist himself, with Richard Bell. Um, so the details of that should be released soon. And then we have some other um, types of activities. So one quite interesting one that people might be interested to, to join is we'll be having a decolonization reading group that will take place at the, the embassy site and kind of discussing some texts. And something I'm particularly excited about, um, which is that Tina is going to be coming back to Singapore and giving a lecture called Indigenizing the Database, which will also be taking place at the embassy site. And uh, maybe Tina would like to say more about this, but it draws some on some really interesting work that she did in the registration department of National Gallery of Australia, where she looked at how the museum database itself can be used as a practical tool to encode Indigenous knowledge and challenge colonial ways of seeing and collecting. And you might have actually noticed some of the results of this work in the exhibition itself. For example, um, on some of the labels, we, we have the attribution ancestor instead of unknown artists. So that's a result of this kind of approach to, to the database attribution. So I'm really hoping that this can be, you know, this, a spark, a sort of interesting discussion on the implications of this practice and, you know, whether, whether there's any meaningful way that we could look at this in Singapore and Southeast Asia as well, you know, in terms of, you know, how we, how we present, how we classify, how we describe Singapore and Southeast Asian cultural material using the tools of the museum. So, so that's another kind of interesting event that's going to happen. Later this year, yeah, I just I just wanted to add too that um, something that may be of interest to to listeners and audiences is that one of the placards that are um, with Richard Bell's uh, embassy work is um, about the Kembe land claim, which um, in you know which was lodged in 1979, and and at the time. Um, you know, was one of the longest running land claims, um, which is what the Ten Embassy and uh, Rich's work is all about, um, was actually um, handed back or, or majority of the land was handed back to the Larrakia people um, next week. So on the 21st of June, it, it happened in 2016. So 2016, the anniversary is on the 21st of June next week where, um, you know, the handback of lands uh, um, occurred um, for the Larrakee people. So, you know, it's that sort of historical and that that um, contemporary kind of connections that's mm. still going on. So even though this is an artwork, you know, it's very much based off um, uh, the original presence, of course, as mentioned, um, in Canberra with the original Ten Embassy. Um, but they're not just placards, they're not just parts of an artwork, that they are uh, related to um, real events and, you know, events that still affect uh, communities today. But I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd highlight that the 21st of June um, this year is the um, sixth anniversary of that um, that handback that occurred. And, um, you know, it was wonderful to be able to share that with Richard when he was in Sydney um, at some point. And, you know, we had a wonderful conversation about it, but uh, yeah, that these, um, some of these issues are slightly resolved and, uh, and some are still ongoing. 
Yeah, speaking about um, unresolved or ongoing issues, um, the both of you have previously alluded to the fact that Singapore and Australia both have this shared history of colonization by the British. And I'm also wondering, um, how does the exhibition try to approach connecting the issues that are raised by ever-present to the Singapore or Southeast Asian context? I mean, it, the show brings up a number of very difficult and critical topics such as land dispossession and the loss of indigenous cultures. So I'm wondering if there are attempts made to kind of contextualize or perhaps connect how these issues are also relevant to Singapore. Yeah, I mean, we thought very carefully about how to approach the connections in our histories. And we were of course aware that, you know, this is one of the reasons why the exhibition would be resonant in Singapore is, is precisely because of this kind of shared history. But at the same time, we also felt that we had to consider that the histories of Australia and Singapore are not the same. And we were concerned that the exhibition itself shouldn't try to impose an Australian framework onto Singapore or Southeast Asia for that matter in a kind of rigid or prescriptive way. So we also felt we had to be a bit cautious about this. Um, so in the, in the main exhibition, you can see that what we decided to do was to let the stories of the first peoples of Australia kind of unfold on their own terms. Um, so of course, we, we did select works that we thought might be meaningful or resonant here, but we didn't tend to kind of be very explicit um, in the text or the framing. And that was because we felt like that story really had to be told on its own terms. Um, but of course, that was with the idea that, you know, we could let the works speak for themselves and let a conversation or a response develop in a sort of more open or organic way um, through the audience response and in, in the way that people might engage with the works. And I hope that in our programming around the show, that will be the opportunity to have some of these conversations um, in a meaningful and thoughtful way too, you know, about what, what the implications might be in Singapore. And of course, the other approach we took um, alongside, you know, the way we, we looked at the main exhibition was that we took um, a series of um, works by Aboriginal artists and put them directly into our Southeast Asia permanent galleries. So in those galleries, they kind of form a trail. Um, there's five works in the, in the galleries, which is intended to engage with critical issues within the Southeast Asia galleries exhibition narrative and, and through that to kind of bring up this sort of parallel, you know, these kind of parallel ideas or give a sense of where we can see at certain points in history artists are grappling with similar or kind of related problems. And for me, it, it raised some really exciting kind of issues. So for example, in Southeast Asia Gallery 3, which is where we present um, in the Southeast Asia Permanent Gallery in the exhibition Between Declarations and Dreams, which has been our Southeast Asia exhibition since 2015, that's the site where we present artworks from the picturesque landscape tradition in Southeast Asian art in 1920s to 1940s, you know, something that's visible across the region. And we placed in that room a work by the First Nations artist, Christopher Pease, which is about the fact that the picturesque landscape image in the Australian context, picturesque landscape paintings, are in fact images that come out of the violent dispossession um, of First Peoples from the land. So, you know, often they're, they're unpeopled landscapes, they're very sort of romantic looking, and yet this landscape is produced by an extraordinarily violent process of dispossession. So looking at the work in the context of the Southeast Asia Gallery might ask, well, what are, what are the histories behind those, you know, that are occluded from those idyllic landscapes too? You know, the Southeast Asian works are also often images of kind of unpeopled, untouched looking landscapes, but made at the height of colonization when the landscape was being transformed into a plantation economy or industrialized where people's relationship to the land was also being fundamentally changed. Yet the art, you know, the art omits that story. So it's a kind of little provocation to remind us of kind of what, what's behind the image. And similarly in gallery six, um, also in between declarations and dreams are our Southeast Asia permanent galleries. Um, in that space, we deal with the history of artists who are participating in the post-World War II independence movements in Southeast Asia and oftentimes kind of visualizing the nation or engaged in certain struggles for the post-colonial nation, including, you know, issues of um, representation, social justice, kind of leftist movements. Um, and so here we put a work by the very important First Nations photographer, Mervyn Bishop, and it's documenting one of the earliest successful native title claims uh, in Australia in the 1970s. So the work, oh, sorry, the late 1960s, I think it's 1967. 
And the photograph shows the then Prime Minister Gough Whitlam pouring soil into the hands of Gurindji elder Vincent Lingiari, as you know, the land is symbolically kind of handed back. But the reason why we put it in Southeast Asia Gallery 6 is that this image is really telling the story that actually the, the formation of the nation of Australia wasn't redemptive for First Nations people in Australia. It wasn't a kind of solution to the issues and, and violence of the colonial period. In fact, in many ways, it was a continuation of it. You know, it was a continuation of their fight for visibility and recognition within the framework of the nation. And in some ways, that's a theme that's kind of latent in the Southeast Asia Gallery as well. Like the idea that even within this sort of discourse of the nation, issues of social justice don't disappear. You know, the legacies of the colonial period are not necessarily gone. There's this kind of ongoing need to, to sort of decolonize or to recognize that the nation didn't necessarily enfranchise everybody equally in every situation. So I think that's similarly a sort of provocation to kind of bring out you know, some aspects of the exhibition. So I think that's the way that we approached it, to kind of look at these sort of comparative conversations we might have in the Southeast Asia Gallery, and then allow the story of the First Peoples of Australia to kind of unfold um, in the main part of the exhibition. Um, my last question is for Tina, and I would like to ask if there are trajectories or themes that you wish to see or develop in future exhibitions dedicated to First Peoples art. Absolutely. Um, you know, as Phoebe mentioned, I'm certainly passionate about, you know, particularly working in museums and galleries for such a long time, that representation of, um, you know, First Nations peoples, whether it's from Australia or from other um, nations, um, that representation and, and you know, decolonising or, as I prefer, um, indigenizing um, our presence in these, you know, really structured white, you know, European organizations. However, the other area of passion of mine, as can be seen by two works in the show, um, is, you know, um, to really show that there are many, many sides to who we are as, as contemporary First Nations peoples today. So, you know, there are enthusiasts for cars, cooking, or like many of us, pop culture. So we've got two works in the show, which I really wanted to kind of highlight as well. So a, a really large sort of bright orange um, spider figure by Harry Jejuna, um, and which of course looks at nunkeries and about healers and how spiders and spider webs are actually, you know, um, you know, used as part of healing and, you know, really strong cultural connection that Harry has with, um, that he did. Um, with um, spiders, you know, this, this odd thing which people may not think of as as an important part of cultural practice. But uh, adjacent to that work is a work by Warwick Thornton, of course, this internationally renowned, you know, filmmaker. Um, but he's done a really beautiful, simple work, which is also about nunkeries and about healers. But it relates to the Star Wars movies. So when Warwick was a young man, of course, in the 70s, he saw the Star Wars movies for the first time and saw their idea and concept of a Jedi. And he's like, yeah, I get it. We've got Jedis as well. They're called Nunkeries. They're our healers. They're our powerful people. They're our um, spiritual healers, you know. They're, we've already got them. So, you know, um, just that's drawing that parallel to um, contemporary, you know, um, passions today. So, you know, um, bringing out the sort of um, the, that Jedi connection, which I think might be of real, you know, interest and surprise to, to visitors when they go through. But also, I'd really love to be able to show that um, who we are today, you know, looking at um, our presence today um, and pop culture. Uh, for many, many First Nations artists across the world, where they draw those parallels with their cultural um, ideas and concepts, as well as just their passion for living in a contemporary world today. So, yeah, that, that side of it is, is um, something that um, is a kind of a watch this space sort of area where I think that's an area that um, many audiences across the world will be really quite um, interested in and can engage in because, you know, everybody has an interest in, in things and I think pop culture with, um, you know, whether it's Star Wars or, you know, Star Trek or, you know, 
whatever it might be, Pokemon, whatever it might be, that there is a strong interest out there that many, many artists are depicting in their works today. Um, and that's an area that I'd certainly like to, to travel down personally and professionally as well. So. And before we end, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, I want to tell them to come to the show. <laughs> Come to the show and come to the programs. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of inroads and and points of connections that that audiences can have. Whether it's just the visual um, engagement that that happens, that people will love the beautiful artwork that's on display. But hopefully, they kind of come in and delve into not only the deeper levels of of what the artists are actually depicting, but also what the National Gallery of Singapore has has provided. You know, this opportunity of not only showcasing these works in these incredibly beautiful gallery spaces, but that the, the tendrils that connect into the Southeast Asia galleries as well, and and that there is a real strong, you know, um, certainly in the um, in the past, but even to today, um, you know, I understand that there's a lot of Australians uh, that live in um, uh, Singapore, but you know, for those that um, um, want to engage at a deeper level come on in and enjoy the works and and uh, the, the stories being told in the show. Thank you for your sharing and your time. Thank you so much for having us. You're very welcome and I hope everyone enjoys the show. Thank you for listening to Ian's Research Club, another market podcast. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to stay updated when new episodes drop. You can find the podcast by searching Ian's Research Club on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Do rate and review us as it helps others discover the show. For images of the artworks and exhibitions discussed, visit the ANM website. Our URL is www.artandmarket.net. Follow ANM on Instagram and Facebook for more specialist content on Southeast Asian art. Till next time, bye!